Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Two and a half months ago, the terrorist group Hamas attacked Israel, storming across the Israel-Gaza border and murdering 1,200 people. Hamas also committed unthinkable acts of violence against women, children, and families. To offer an important perspective on this war, I've invited Miko Schaefer to join us on today's episode. Miko is married to Aaron Schaefer, who is a tour guide in Israel, and you may remember Aaron from a past episode where he took us to the altar of Manoah. Miko has nine children, and one of them is serving in the Israel Defense Forces right now. She also lives in Beersheba, a city that is less than 30 miles from the Gaza Strip and whose residents have had to hurry to bomb shelters when sirens go off in Israel due to Hamas firing rockets. I'm so grateful Miko has taken the time to talk with us. I know the information she shares will be valuable and help us better understand what the Jewish people in Israel are facing. Miko, thanks for joining us here on The Virtual Voyage. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me to talk with you guys, Abigail. I want to talk about the specific day, October 7th, that Hamas chose to attack Israel. Miko, you are an Orthodox Jew, so tell us what holiday the Jews were celebrating on October 7th and the significance of Hamas choosing that day to storm into Israel and brutally murder and take hostage innocent Jews. The holiday we're celebrating is called Simchat Torah, which literally means joy of Torah. Um, Throughout the year, um, it's our custom to break down the entire um, original Hebrew Bible into sections and a portion of it is read every Saturday in the synagogue. Um, So Simchat Torah celebrates um, the conclusion of the annual cycle of Torah reading. Um, It's a really festive holiday. Um, We had planned for that day to have uh, community meals at the synagogue and just because you just don't even want to go home. It's 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 a it's just a really fun holiday for the entire community, and it has the additional significance in Israel of like all the holidays in Israel. It's a real time for families to get together. Um, I don't know if a lot of people outside of Israel realize that Sundays are regular weekday in Israel. Government offices are open. There is no weekend. Um, there's just Shabbat. So holidays have the extra added significance of being a day when families get together. And because of this, all the guys in the army don't want to be at their stations either. Everybody wants to be at home. Everybody wants to be with family or with their own community. And holidays are a natural are a natural weakness um, for the Jewish people. So it's understandable that it would be a day where Hamas would choose to attack. They would know that there were less um, soldiers stationed in their in their regular spots, and uh, people are just off guard celebrating the Torah. Turning to October seventh and those attacks, what was October seventh like for you and your family, especially because you are relatively close to the Gaza border? Take us through an account of that day. Well, I think it's important to note that because we are on the Gaza border, well, we're about a 30-minute, 25-minute drive from the Gaza border. So we occasionally do have attacks from Hamas where, um, like, when I was growing up in Canada, they taught us, what do you do if your friend falls through the ice when you're ice skating? Like, you throw your scarf, you don't get too close to the hole. And 
my husband growing up in California was taught what to do when there is an earthquake. Um, and my kids in Beersheba, unfortunately, are very aware of what they need to do if they hear a rocket siren. Um, so rocket sirens in Beersheba are as are about as common as snow days in uh, in some of the colder places in the states. If it's a particularly tense time um, militarily, we usually get a heads up that there may be rocket sirens, and the kids are aware that um, even when they're sleeping at night, they may be woken up and need to run to the bomb shelter. They'll hear it. They know what to do. So that is sadly part of their day-to-day, no, not day-to-day, but it's part of their reality, um, unfortunately, in the past years. So on Simchat Torah, we had no warning of any um, potential security situation. There was no heads up at all. There was, uh, so Friday night, the celebrations began and we had like a big party at the synagogue and we had a meal there and we had like a potluck planned for the next day. And every, everybody went to bed really late. And it's and it's just the entire city, like <laughs> the whole the whole city was celebrating. So <clears throat> everyone went to bed really late. Um, and then at 6.30 in the morning, the sirens started. So totally unprepared. Uh, in in Bersheba, depending on where you are geographically, you're, the distance that you are from where the rockets have been sent from, you have different lengths of time where you can safely get to a bomb shelter. So Beersheba has a minute and a half. So at 6.30 a.m., everybody's asleep. We've got a minute and a half to wake up, recognize the, the sound of the siren, gather kids from tops of bunk beds, cribs, get down the stairs, down the block. Um, we're about um, I don't know, about four houses away from the closest bomb shelter. And then when you get to the door of the bomb shelter, you've got to get down the staircase of the bomb shelter with all the neighborhood, <laughs> everybody in their pajamas, and everybody just a little, you know, confused and half asleep. And people are bringing their their pets and um, and carrying children who won't quite wake up. And it's a it, it's it's a really wild experience. But especially if you don't have if you don't have any preparation ahead of time. So that morning we had zero, zero preparation. And in fact, the bomb shelter, it's its a, uh, a benefit if the bomb shelter can have a dual usage. Um, so often the bomb shelters will be also used for like a synagogue or a community center. So our bomb shelter seconds as a synagogue, but because it's also a synagogue, there are valuable things inside. So it remains locked unless there is a potential security risk. Um, so when there's a war, it's obviously unlocked all the time and people can go whenever. But when there's not a war, it's locked up like any public building will be locked. Um, and the person that has the key is the guy who lives closest. So the guy who lives closest uh, was not the first person to get to the bomb shelter that morning. And when the whole neighborhood arrived at the bomb shelter, it was locked. So you've got a minute and a half. By the time you actually get there, the clock is ticking. It's locked. Everybody's just saying and looking around, what now? What do we do now? So there's also like levels of of safety. Um, Ideally, you want to be in a bomb shelter. If you don't have a bomb shelter, second best is to be in the staircase of a building on a floor that's not the bottom floor and not the top floor. Third, it's like there are levels of safety. So the closest level of safety that we were able to find at that moment was one of the neighbors had just opened up their house and said, come into my house, into an inner room where there's no windows. So it's not ideal, but 
that worked for the first few minutes. So like half the people just ran into his, this guy's house. And um, after that, it was just like siren after siren after siren. The neighbor ended up coming with the key to the actual bomb shelter and everybody moved into the bomb shelter. And we stayed there for, um, I don't know, it was like maybe two or three hours that morning where there was no break in, in the sirens, not enough break to go home. And then after after two, three hours, there was a bit of a break. And I want to mention also that since it was Shabbat and a holiday, we don't use uh, cell phones or anything that's electric, lights. You're not going to be switching lights on and off or changing settings on an air conditioning. Um, so nobody was checking their phones, um, which is also part of the prohibitions of Shabbat. So we didn't really have access to news. And, and the truth is that there wasn't actually getting news wasn't actually getting out anyway at this point. So we were just doing what we knew best to do, which was stay in the bomb shelter. And when we had a break and there was a break and like when there was a break in sirens for a few minutes, um, everybody in the neighborhood kind of you have to you have the picture. Everybody's there um, in their pajamas um, before coffee, before anything. So we had a break. So we all ran to our houses and quickly got dressed. Um, and then there was another siren. So we were back in the bomb shelter. Then the next break, people kind of ran home and got a coffee and then ran back with their coffees and whatever. But there was there was very little breaks that morning. Um there were a couple of people who had um, some information, and um, we had one one of our neighbors uh, had some information. He's not religious, and he was checking his phone, and I don't know if it was through, like, Telegram or WhatsApp. I don't know how he got information, but he was, like, panicking. Um, he had heard that one, one Israeli was taken hostage, and he was panicking. He was just running up and down the sidewalk, holding his head in his hands. They've got one of ours. Um, and so, you, I mean, you can understand from that that it was, we had, we had no idea the extent of the situation at that point. As we continue here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, Miko, one of your sons is a member of the Israel Defense Forces. What was the process for your son being called up to serve, especially with him being in New York when he was told he needed to return to Israel? What was it like for you knowing your son was going to be defending your homeland in this war? Well, like I was saying before about the situation with the community, we were all kind of experiencing this um, terrible situation together in the bomb shelter, and any news that was coming in, we were kind of receiving together. So one of the pieces of news that was coming in is uh, brothers, sons, fathers, husbands, lots of guys in the neighborhood were being called to come in immediately. Um, so I, I under, so we actually, actually one of my neighbors serves together with my son. He's in the same unit as my son and he was called, he was home and he was called up. So we'd get a break in the, in the, in the rocket sirens, we'd head home. And next time we come back, I see, I see hit my son's, um, um, army buddy in his uniform. So I, I understood, we understood pretty quickly that just everybody's being called up. And, um, at this point in America, the rumors started to come in around 10 AM in New York time. So my son knew that he needed to, he, he knew he needed to come home. And there, there were actually the LL flights were filling up with soldiers coming home to fight. That does not mean they were free. <laughs> we paid an arm and a leg for that flight, which as a mother was like, what am I doing? Like, 
I'm, I'm paying a lot of money to bring my child home to fight. Like, does this make, so I'm, and I'm like proud of him that I've raised him to take responsibility. And, 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 and even though he had all the excuses in the world to stop everything and come home and take his place and take his role here, I was also like, wait, what have I done? Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, he got on a flight pretty quickly. Um, and then I needed to meet him. So by the time he got home, it was, I guess it was Sunday afternoon and I needed to meet him at the airport. We basically packed his bag for him. Like he had only civilian clothes in New York and he had planned to be in, he'd gotten special permission to go to New York for the holidays. Um, so that was totally cut short, but he only had civilian clothes with him. So I helped him pack his army stuff over WhatsApp video, which is like great to have that technology. And the the plan was I'm going to meet him at the airport with his army stuff. He's going to give me his civilian stuff. I'm now going to drive him to his base and that's where he'll be. But by the time he landed, um, it wasn't safe anymore for me to drive him to his base. So the plan changed and there were some guys going to some guys who were heading towards his base. were going to meet us at the airport. So we're just going to like shuffle all the stuff and um, and get him to the base. But the guys that showed up at the airport, um, the, well, the way it works in, in Israel is like people have their own um, army gear, like their fatigues and stuff. And when they report for duty, they're given a weapon. That's their that's their weapon that they're using while they're in the army. And then when they go home, if they're not in active service, they leave their weapon there. So most of the people that are just walking around, if they're not actively on duty, um, they're not armed. So there was a group of soldiers that were all traveling together to this base, which was the roads were not safe to get to the base, but none of them were armed because they hadn't shown up yet for duty. Like uh, it was, it was a little, um, a little nerve wracking, but we decided that they will have to drive one way. And if I take him, I'll have to drive two ways. Um, and actually while we were at the airport, there was a siren and a rocket landed. It was not, it was not thwarted by the iron dome and it landed in a field next to the parking lot at the airport. So it was just like, it, it was, it was a very dramatic coming home. Um, and so he, and he went straight to, um, he went straight to his service after that. With your son on the battlefield, do you get to see him during this war? Do families have contact with the IDF soldiers fighting to protect the nation? It really depends where they've been stationed. So um, my son is on the Jordanian border. So he has a lot more leeway to, he has his cell phone on him. Um, we can talk to him every day. Um, if he's not going to be available for a certain amount of hours and he thinks we might worry about him, he lets us know we're not, not going to be available. Um, he checks in with us after they've been on, um, I mean, they go on, on um, active, he calls it activities. I don't know what you'd actually call them in English, but like he goes on um, missions, I guess the word is. So when he goes on a mission, he'll, he'll let us know it went badly, it went well, or um, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm back at the base. I'm safe back at the base. I have one neighbor whose son and another neighbor whose two sons-in-laws are in Gaza. And the guys that are actually in Gaza are not allowed to have their cell phones. Um, my one neighbor um, from Simchat Torah from October 7th, she did not hear from her son for, I think it was 22 days. 
And after she was just, um, she aged 10 years in those few weeks. She looked, and her husband as well. The two of them were just worried sick. But they, they have very little contact with their families. The situation is just different there. So after, after about three weeks, he was able to send a message through a friend who was coming home. And she, she still hadn't heard his voice. Um, I think she, the first time she heard his voice was something like 40 days after he, after he was uh, over in Gaza. So it really depends where the guys are serving and what level of security um, they've been allowed um, so since my my son is a medic, so since he's a medic, I, I think that gives him more ability to um, call home. But I'm not I'm not totally sure. But he he can have a lot. He can have a really reasonable amount of contact with us. I understand there's an interesting story behind getting knee pads to your son's unit in the IDF. The story really speaks to people coming together in support of one mission. Would you share that story? Sure. There's actually, there's so many stories like this. So people should just know it's like, it is one of many, many stories and it's so beautiful. The situation as you have it right now is like, there's, there's an army in Israel that has supplies, right? But they, there's only, there's, there's only a small amount of, of people who are, who are serving, but in a situation like this, when all hands are needed, a lot of the country is serving now. All of the homes are missing a father, a brother, a husband. Um, like in my neighborhood, there is a WhatsApp group of uh, mothers who are making meals for women whose husbands have been gone for so long. And they're just they're just like single moms with four, five, six, seven little kids at home. So the city's pretty empty of, of people, but all those people are now serving in the army and there's not enough gear to go around. So when my son showed up for service, he didn't, he showed up and there was like, there were no blankets. Uh, and like, there's all these basic things that are missing. And all of a sudden, obviously more serious things too, um, they were missing um, bulletproof vests. So the priority of where the quality gear goes is the guys at the front. But that doesn't mean uh, the guys that are not at the front are not also in danger um, and doing dangerous things and could not also benefit from but it, it's a matter of, of of deciding where it's most um, most important to be put. So the best bulletproof vests will go first to the guys at the front, and if there's none left for the guys on the other border, tough luck. But go try and tell tough luck to a Jewish mother, any mother. <laughs> so um, there was this crazy situation where um, one of the army supply warehouses stopped taking calls from the army because it was being so harassed by the mothers um, requesting um, all kinds of gear that they wouldn't even answer their phone anymore. They didn't care who was calling. And because they wouldn't answer their phone, the moms were showing up. I need to buy a bulletproof vest. I need to buy a helmet. But they were all sold out. The, the country was just totally sold out. So in my son's unit, the guys didn't have knee pads. And if you're sitting on your knees and you're 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 trying to you're you're trying to be an effective soldier. And your knees hurt. You can't get your job done. And knee pads, knee pads shouldn't be complicated, right? But suddenly they were. There was a shortage. Um, there was a shortage in Israel on knee pads, <laughs> and um, 
I told my friend about this, who, from what I understand, wants to stay anonymous. Um, so I told my friend in America that my, she said, what can I do? What can I do? And I said, you know what? I don't know. Maybe you can figure out knee pads. The poor babies, they got blankets, but they didn't get knee pads. So they got bulletproof vests. They got helmets, but they're still missing knee pads. So she looked around, found a friend of hers in a totally different state who was able to buy knee pads for his, for my son's unit. And then this friend found another friend who was able to drive knee pads two and a half hours to my, my other son, who was going to fly from New York to Israel. He's not, he's not in doing his army service yet. And he was, he was already in New York also, and he was going to fly from New York to Israel. So this was like moms around the world. <laughs> so one mom got another mom. The knee pads were bought. And then we started to worry, well, when the knee pads get to Israel with my second son who's flying to Israel, maybe they're going to be stopped at customs because someone's coming in with like a whole a whole suitcase of knee pads. So one of one of the mothers was like, well, let's just stuff the bag full of like sweatshirts and blankets and like, I don't know, sweatpants, socks, you know, like candy. The soldiers need candy. <laughs> so they stuffed the, this duffel bag full of like all kinds of stuff around the knee pads the knee pads did make it through customs they landed in israel like the next day was it the next day or two days later um i met i met uh i came to the airport to pick up my son who was returning home we planned to meet another soldier who was on his way to my son's base so we planned to meet him at the airport he met us at the airport we transferred the knee pads from my car to his car. Well, first we had to dig them out of like the sweatpants and the, and the, and we gave him the candy also. So we sent the candy and the knee pads. Yeah. So all the all the candy and all the knee pads made it to the soldiers, and they were so happy. And they put all the, you know, it it sounds really minor, but um, anything to make them more effective. That's just like one heartwarming story of you know all the moms trying to take care of their soldiers. But there but there's lots and lots and. And the way that they got a bulletproof vests and the way they got uh, top of the line helmets. And um, recently the guys uh, realized that, like, why are, why are we working with these scopes on the weapons that can't, that don't have night vision when we can add a piece that has night vision? So there were a bunch of, a bunch of people who got together and said, well, we'll support that. Well, let's, let's send over some money and figure out where to buy it and get the guys um, these scopes. So it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's been a long road, but it's been, it's been really beautiful. How everyone's, everyone's trying to help, including Candy. As we continue our discussion about the war in Israel here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, Miko, has Israel changed since the war started, perhaps politically, religiously, or in some other area? What is different about the Israel on October 6th versus the Israel on and since October 7th? On the ground, it's very much still a war. Um, my kids have gone back to school uh, for the first time last week. It just wasn't safe, safe enough for them to be at the school, even though there's a bomb shelter at the school. We have friends who live closer to the border, and uh, they've been able to go home to pick up a couple things. But... The, the sounds of war are just too loud to live there. The windows shake. Every every time there's a bomb that's dropped in Gaza, the windows in their little town shake. E- even if it's safe, 
the quality of life is is you, you can't live there. So there's thousands of people from those um, from those settlements along the border that are just uh, displaced. Um, they're li- they, they've entire hotels have been turned into basically apartment complexes. I mean, there's no there's no tourism now anyway, so to speak. So um, if you were to go to a hotel, you'd t- you'd find children running up and down the hallways. Um, schools in all of all, in the safer areas of Israel have taken in um, the kids from sections of Israel where the kids can't be at home. So the the entire country is still very much affected, and it's really brought people together because there's no other option. People have opened their homes, their businesses. Our local meat store, he closes every day now instead of closing at, at 8 or 9 p.m. He closes at 4 because after 4, he goes to a base every evening and does a barbecue for the soldiers. So he's he's not even there. And pe- people will people from outside of Israel will call him, give him a credit card number, and he'll just like stock up a bunch of meat for them. And the barbecue will be, will be sponsored by... Uh, and in honor of uh, whatever family called in that day with a credit card number for the meat, and he but he goes and he he takes volunteers with him, and they barbecue for the soldiers different base every every afternoon or whatever. So it's like it's it's very much still uh, not life as usual. I know every person living in Israel has been touched by the war, and they have witnessed heroes there in Israel acting to protect the nation. Are there any stories that come to mind of people who have bravely acted to defend Israel during this time? Um, Yeah, but it's like, it's not like um, you might consider like a classic hero running to save the day in any way. It's kind of like every person has been forced to live their best persona. So we have a really good friend who... On the on on the day of Simchat Torah, he had a responsibility. He's a pediatrician, and he's the only doctor in his little town. And they just people kept bringing him injured and dying because he was the only doctor in the area. It, it was a strange thing that he was the only doctor in the area, but it just it just there were a lot a lot of doctors who who. I, I won't go too much into the into the sadness of that of that day, but uh, he 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 was he was there and he was able to help and he did and it was a it was he was a hero that day, but it's had its it had it's had its effects on him and he he's actually considering now um, giving up uh, being a doctor because it was it was such a traumatic day for him. But for me, that's. Every person did the best they could with what they had, and and that and that's what's like that. That is an everyday hero, if you will. I want to bring attention to the Israeli hostages still in Gaza. Although almost eighty Israeli hostages have been released, there are still over one hundred that remain in Gaza, and those include men, women, and children. Have you been to any events or met any hostages that have been released? How has the hostage tragedy affected the whole of Israel? Um, I, th- I think for most people, it's just basic heartbreaking. Uh, when they when they did the hostage uh, transfers, we started to see a pattern in the neighborhood. Our our neighborhood is kind of on the way between Gaza and Soroka Hospital, so we'd hear like many many ambulances around 9 p.m. and then after that, you'd hear the hostages have arrived at Soroka and. Everyone is the you know the update of, of what's going on. 
so it, it just really really is like a just a, a heartbreaking part of life and uh the flip side of of everyone desiring those uh hostages to be home is all of the casualties in order to bring them home if if the israeli army had decided to just you know flatten hamas and flatten gaza we wouldn't have the casualties that we have so it's also like the the moral question of are the hostages lives worth more than the soldiers lives so it, it it's very multifaceted and every and every single facet of it is heartbreaking how would you encourage those of us listening to pray for and support israel are there any resources you'd point us to or reminders that you'd leave us with? I think that over the history of the Jewish people, we've always been persecuted and the greatest persecutions come from ignorance. I myself, by profession, I teach people to read Hebrew. Um, and most of the people that want to learn how to read Hebrew, they want to know how to read the original Bible in the original language. And I really think that's a very beautiful thing because lots is lost in translation. Um, lots is lost in translation in Islam as well. And I think that the average Muslim who is going and supporting Hamas is not understanding the teachings of Islam. And even if you want to talk about Christianity, the average Christian who uh, supported the Crusades if they understood what the Bible said, would they have supported the Crusades? The land of Israel was given to the Jews. It's written by God in the Bible. So I would say the best thing to do is self-educate, educate others. Just that happening would, would, would be a really wonderful thing. Before we let you go, I want to give you a chance to talk about your books. And so tell us about your work teaching Hebrew and where people can learn more about you. Thanks. I have a website called learnhebrew.tv and at learnhebrew.tv you can see all the stuff I do. Um, I give courses. Um, my most popular book is called Learn to Read Hebrew in Six Weeks. Um, fascinatingly, it's, uh, it's held the number one position in foreign language instruction on Amazon, which is like Hebrew higher than Spanish or Chinese or Russian. So it really shows people do love the Bible and they want to understand it in the original language. I would have to say that's the that's the top motivation that um, that my students have. I also have a course called the Genesis course, which teaches people to read Hebrew and to read and translate the first chapter of Genesis in the original Hebrew. I also have a book called um, the Hebrew Workbook, which teaches people how to write in Hebrew and the Hebrew Reader, where you can practice reading classic classic Hebrew texts, and a series of books that's, this series is actually my favorite. It's called the Easy Ivrit Storybook Series. Ivrit means Hebrew. And I take classic Bible stories and I write them in English, but then every once in a while, you'll find scattered throughout the book, one of the words will be in Hebrew. So this is for people that already know how to read Hebrew, and you can read these books with your kids. And in the back of the book, and there's a translation and a transliteration so that you know you've you've read it correctly and you can learn Hebrew while you're reading in English. It's like Hebrew immersion and it's with classic Bible stories that are also, you know, nothing better than classic Bible stories. Miko, thanks so much for joining us here on the virtual voyage. We're grateful you've taken the time to share more about life in Israel during this war. 
as well as ways that we can remember and pray for the Jewish people in God's deliverance of your nation. Thank you, Abigail. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us today on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope this episode has made you more aware about the current war in Israel, and especially its effect on the families living there. Please join me in praying for Israel and the Jewish people that God will grant them safety and deliver them from the enemy.